Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Welcome to another episode of Critical Matters. Today, we will discuss seizures in the ICU. It's a pleasure and an honor to have as our guest, Dr. Thomas Bleck. Dr. Bleck is Professor of Neurological Sciences, Neurosurgery, Internal Medicine, and Anesthesiology at Rush University Medical Center, where he's also a practicing neurointensivist, the Director of the Clinical Neurophysiology. Dr. Bleck is board certified in internal medicine with subspecialty certification in critical care medicine, also certified in neurology with subspecialty certifications in vascular neurology and epilepsy, clinical neurophysiology, and in neurocritical care. Dr. Bleck has, re- has, re- has been elected as a Master of Critical Care Medicine by the American College of Critical Care Medicine and Society of Critical Care Medicine and has received numerous awards for his contributions to critical care and to neurocritical care. He's one of the founding fathers of neurocritical care as a specialty and is an ex-official member of the Board of Directors of the Neurocritical Care Society of which he was the, fo- the founding president. It's truly a pleasure to have him today to discuss seizures. Tom, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you. So I think that a good place to start would be, I tend to notice that when a patient has a seizure in the hospital, where it's in the emergency department, on the floors, or even in the ICU, and perhaps this doesn't happen in the neuro ICU, but at least in general ICUs, it seems that nobody really knows what to do. And it's one of these very traumatic events, both for families, but also I think for the staff, and I've always, it catch, catches my attention that nobody really seems how to deal with these, with these seizures. Could you tell us to begin with, Tom, what should we do when somebody's seizing in front of us? I think the first thing to remember is that almost all seizures are going to end spontaneously. So there is no need to immediately rush in with some sort of therapy. Uh, rather, observe how the seizure starts and mostly try to protect the patient from any harm. Uh, You don't want the patient, for example, to get smothered by the pillow or the sheets, which still happens from time to time. Uh, In the hospital, most of the things that are harmful out in the community won't be present, like the ability to uh, bump into a radiator or put your hand on an open glass flame. Uh, But people can still be injured in the hospital, especially if they're uh, seizing down on the floor where they can collide with objects. So when the seizure is over, which in the vast majority uh, will end spontaneously, uh, turn the patient to the side in the recovery position to try to prevent them from aspirating. Of course, if they're already intubated, that's not an issue. Uh, Secretions in the mouth can be a problem, but don't stick anything in the mouth uh, except perhaps to separate the teeth uh, if they're chewing on their tongue. Now, in the small number of cases where the seizure doesn't end spontaneously, uh, one should then proceed to use pharmacologic therapy to terminate it. It's usually not necessary to immediately intubate patients who are not intubated, uh, and a judicious dose of a benzodiazepine uh, in most patients will stop the seizure. Uh, If the patient already has an IV, then 0.1 milligram per kilo dose of lorazepam uh, is appropriate for a convulsion. Uh, If the patient happens not to have an IV, then probably 10 to 20 milligrams of midazolam IM based on the Rampart trial would be superior 
to taking the time to start an IV. Uh, that's one of the things we have learned from randomized study most recently. Uh, about 65% of patients who require benzodiazepines to stop their seizure will stop seizing. Uh, some percentage of them will go from convulsive uh, seizure activity to non-convulsive status epilepticus. So if they continue to seize or they don't begin to wake up, uh, then one would move on to second line therapy. We're in the midst of a trial called ESET, the Established Status Epilepticus Treatment Trial, that's comparing three uh, of the usual anti-seizure drugs to see whether there's any advantage uh, to one of them. So the drugs being tried are phosphenatoin, 20 milligrams per kilo, valproate, 40 milligrams per kilo, and levetiracetam, 60 milligrams per kilo. Uh, at this point, near the end of the study, we've stopped randomizing adults at the request of the DSMB uh, because they believe we will not be able to establish the superiority of one of these agents over another. We're still randomizing children. The important thing to take away from that, though, is that a 60 milligram dose of levetiracetam, uh, 60 milligrams per kilo, uh, is a dose that is uh, at least as safe as the others and at least as efficacious. Um, so if you're going to use levetiracetam, you really need to use an adequate dose, giving 500 milligrams or 1,000 milligrams, uh, and considering that that's a failed dose because the patient continues to seize really hasn't given the drug an adequate try. Uh, within a year or so, we hope to have the results of that study ready for publication uh, to see if there are any nuances that will be useful or to see if one of the uh, drugs is superior when treating children. Tom, since you Other mentioned, that can, can, I, can I interrupt and ask you a quick question? Uh, you mentioned the underdosing of, uh, of levetiracetam, and I think that that's not an uncommon theme with other antiepileptics, including benzos. Could you comment on that a little bit? Because I think that a lot of intensivists who are not neurointensivists or neurologists tend to underdose uh, patients as they're treating the seizures. Absolutely. And we know this actually uh, from data being collected that were done uh, subsequently uh, focusing on children uh, that people are not giving adequate initial doses of a benzodiazepine, which use 0.1 milligrams per kilo of lorazepam as their dose, uh, had, again, 65% or so effectiveness. Uh, giving larger doses appears not to be more useful, but giving less is not an adequate trial. Uh, so focusing on lorazepam, since most of the patients uh, seen by intensivists will already have an IV in place. Uh, you need to make sure you've given an adequate dose. If the patient's had a behavior change and your question is whether this could be a non-convulsive seizure and you want to give a few milligrams of lorazepam, I guess that's all right. Uh, but there's probably no downside to giving the whole dose um, other than some sedation. Uh, and if you haven't given it an adequate dose in convulsive status, uh, then you've really missed the boat. And I think that there's also good evidence to suggest that intervention after the seizure has stopped in terms of preventing patients to go into status is a time-sensitive intervention and that we should be loading these patients as soon as possible, like you said, to take care of the patient, make sure they're safe. Is that correct? 
Yeah, so it depends in part on why you think the patient had a seizure. So if someone is having one or a cluster of alcohol withdrawal seizures, for example, uh, there's probably no advantage to putting them on a chronic anti-seizure drug. Uh, but if you think that they're seizing because they've had an acute brain injury or uh, they have some intoxication, uh, they have a, a CNS or a systemic infection, uh, then yeah, go ahead and give an adequate loading dose of a more long-acting anti-seizure drug. And uh, as we're talking about uh, the initial treatment, could, could you uh, mention um, some some tips for us, for our, our listeners, uh, in terms of identifying uh, differential diagnosis that can be sometimes confused with seizures, including pseudo-seizures? Right. So... I would have to start by a caveat, which is that uh, 20 years ago, we thought we knew how to identify pseudo-seizures pretty well. And as we've gone to do more recording to prove or disprove that contention, there are a fair number of movements that we used to think of as diagnostic of pseudo-seizures that can be part of real seizures or of epileptic seizures, I should say. Uh, so I'm still a little uh, reticent to label things purely on clinical grounds as being a pseudo-seizure, uh, with the exception of something that I can stop by distracting the patient. Um, uh, people used to think that uh, bicycling movements of the legs were characteristic of pseudo-seizures, but some frontal lobe seizures will also always produce that. Um, most of the time, if someone is moving both sides of their body or complaining of bilateral sensory phenomena, while they're awake uh, and responding to you, then almost all the time that will end up being uh, a non-epileptic seizure. Um, but the, one has to be pretty careful uh, to be sure that you don't label somebody as having paroxysmal non-epileptic seizures uh, without having EEG recording to back you up. So, so clearly the, the role of the EEG in making a definitive diagnosis is still, I mean, the gold standard and correlating what you're seeing uh, clinically. That's correct. Is there, you mentioned the, the, the ISET trial, it's ongoing. So as of now, I have, uh, there's no clear evidence to suggest that one antiepileptic is superior to another. Is that correct? Right. As the second line drug, we, we're pretty sure uh, that uh, lorazepam is the best first-line drug, or if you don't have an IV, midazolam, based on the VA cooperative trial. But uh, of the second-line drugs, uh, adequate doses of phosphanatoin, valproate, or levetiracetam appear to be uh, most likely equivalent. We won't know for sure uh, in terms of efficacy versus safety issues that led the DSMB to stop randomizing adults. Uh, that trial does not include uh, other agents. So, for example, lacosamide was not included because it didn't have an indication for pediatric use at the time that we were designing the trial. But lacosamide is probably also a, a reasonable uh, choice at that uh, juncture. Um, people have tended to use 20, 200, sorry, people have tended to use 200 to 400 milligrams as an initial dose, uh, but uh, the group at the Ashner Clinic in New Orleans has suggested that a loading dose of 10 to 15 milligrams per kilo uh, is actually what would be required uh, and is more efficacious, but that remains to be confirmed by other studies. 
And it seems that one of the important points that you made earlier regarding dosing of levetiracetam is is very important to reemphasize because I do see that this drug, commercially known as Keppra, seems to be utilized more and more, especially in the community hospitals. But it would seem from what you mentioned that people are consistently underdosing this drug. That's correct. Um, one of the first things we do is to finish the load when we get the patient in transfer. There is a related drug newly released that is available for intravenous use called rivaracetam, but at this point we don't know where it fits into the armamentarium for status. And is there still a role for, for patients uh, with status uh, and we, we'll, uh, for other drugs like uh, phenobarbital and other drugs that we've used in the past? So we do use a lot of phenobarbital, but generally uh, after we've gotten the seizures under control, uh, since it takes a while to load, okay. I think the 20 milligram per kilogram loading dose can be quite effective. Uh, we used to use more pentabarb in a third line drug, uh, but pentabarb has gotten very expensive. And I think the uh, efficacy of phenobarbital is probably as at least is good, and it has, seems to have less hypotension than pentobarbital does. Is there any, any role for propofol? So I would think of propofol as I failed the second line, and now I'm going to go on to general anesthesia. Okay. Uh, so whether there's any difference between using propofol or using high-dose midazolam at a 0.2 milligram per kilo load and then starting uh, with 0.2 milligrams per kilogram per hour as an infusion compared to propofol at about 80 mics per kilo per minute as a starting dose remains to be determined. There's no good comparative study in a large group of patients. Um, if you have an anaconda available and can give an inhalational agent, uh, one might also consider using uh, isoflurane or desflurane. Uh, but again, these are getting into small numbers of reports as to what's efficacious. Our practice has been in adults to usually uh, go to propofol if the second line drug has failed and we think we need to get um, immediate control of the patient in status or to use midazolam. I've always been a fan of midazolam, but you have to be willing to start with a large loading dose and then continue to increase the dose. So partly it'll depend on who's going to be watching the EEG. Um, if I'm not able to get a full-time observation of the EEG by someone who knows what they're looking at, I may opt to use propofol. Otherwise, I'll use midazolam. And I think that we, we, we mentioned status. And uh, in medicine, I think it's important to, to be very clear on what we're referring to. And it's not uncommon, uh, at least when, when I get calls, when I'm working clinical, to hear of somebody who had a seizure, got intubated, and they're being admitted for status. Could, could you define for us how we really understand status epilepticus today, Tom? Sure. So in terms of an operational definition, the uh, International League Against Epilepsy has proposed a different uh, time for what should be considered a status in order to start treatment. Uh, or what should be considered uh, the point at which status is established or, or refractory. So in most circumstances that would come to the attention of the intensivist or the emergency physician, five minutes of seizure activity 
should be considered status enough to start the benzodiazepine treatment. If the benzodiazepine succeeds, then uh, you want to try to figure out from an etiologic standpoint what you're dealing with. So the person who goes into status because they become abruptly hyponatremic should get their uh, osmolality uh, repaired in a slight degree. Whereas the person who has a brain abscess and goes into status will need anti-seizure drugs, uh, often several of them. Once you have given that benzodiazepine, if the patient's still seizing, then you're thinking of the, the second line, established status. Um, and there you should try to get control of the patient within 20 to 30 minutes. That's how often it'll usually, how long it'll usually take to get uh, the drug that you need available and administered. After that, then moving on to general anesthesia. So five minutes meets the definition of status as far as starting treatment. The time at which the uncontrolled seizures by themselves start to produce brain damage is probably closer to 30 minutes. Uh, so one of the reasons that initial five minutes was chosen was to have a reasonable chance of the initial treatment getting the patient under control. And and, and because of those five minutes, I would imagine that the, the vast majority of seizures will last less than three, three minutes, two minutes. Usually, like you said, they're, they're usually resolved by themselves. So most people who have a convulsion, it would last less than a couple of minutes, correct? Right. It always seems like it lasts a long time, but when you time them out, they're usually somewhere in the vicinity of 90 seconds to two minutes. And that was also one of the, um, I guess, pearls that I had learned uh, regarding pseudo seizures, people would say that if seizures are very prolonged, they're more likely to be pseudo seizures than seizures. But like you said, without EEG confirmation, that would probably not be a very smart uh, thing to put all your, 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 to bet on today. Right. I'm, if I'm not sure, I'd say if the patient is you know, protecting their airway, then I will try to get the EEG before I would go on to a general anesthetic regimen. Uh, I might have given the initial benzo and a second line agent, um, but I have seen patients who were very convincing and got to the stage of general anesthesia um, where it became clear with subsequent spells that their seizures were not epileptic. So one shouldn't feel bad for uh, trying to do your best until the EEG arrives. And you, and you mentioned in a couple of our uh, uh, times already the, the airway management of these patients. My impression is that people tend to have a knee-jerk reflex to intubate somebody who's seized. And I think that often uh, with close observation, not everybody needs to be intubated. What are your thoughts on this, Tom? So I think since most of the time, uh, at least the 65% of the time, you'll get control with your first drug. Uh, that's often the best way to uh, basically avoid the need for intubation, to go ahead and give the lorazepam or midazolam. If the seizure is not controlled with that, but the patient is still uh, protecting their airway, then I think it's fair to load them with one of the second line agents. Um, if they are convulsing, it's hard to keep them in the recovery position, but if you can keep them turned to the side to try to prevent secretions from going back in the airway. On the other hand, if in that circumstance they're starting to desaturate, 
um, or you're having trouble keeping the airway cleared short of intubation, then I wouldn't be shy about intubating them. Uh, the, the choice of drugs at that point, um, I've always found somewhat interesting. If you know the patient was ambulatory and normal before the seizure started, then the usual rapid sequence induction is probably okay. But if there's any question in your mind about pre-existing neurologic or neuromuscular disease, should probably stay away from succinylcholine because of the risk of hyperkalemia and uh, use rocuronium or some other rapid acting agent, if necessary, reversing it with Sugamidex. The sedative drug that you give along with that to intubate the patient, say you're giving uh, propofol, uh, will probably stop most of the residual seizures, but often for a shorter period of time in a single dose than the neuromuscular junction blocker lasts. So you don't really know that whether the patient is seizing or not uh, until the neuromuscular junction blocker wears off, uh, in which case you might have been seizing for quite some time if it lasted 40 minutes and the propofol effect was 20 minutes. Uh, so I would say to first go ahead and try and get the EEG hooked up as quickly as possible, uh, but also uh, consider reversing the neuromuscular junction blocker in order to get a better exam. And, and in terms of, uh, of um, treating these patients once they're intubated, if they're not waking up, should this be concern for us? And at what point should we be concerned about potential non-convulsive status? All right. So the, the patient who got the 0.1 milligram per kilo dose of lorazepam uh, will probably be somewhat sedated for a half hour or so from that, although some of them do uh, wake up pretty dramatically. But having gone through uh, the extra sedation of intubating them, uh, I would usually be watching uh, for any sign of recovery in terms of even response to noxious stimuli. If they're not responding to noxious stimuli once the neuromuscular junction blocker is reversed or worn off, I would go ahead and load them with a, a second line agent. Uh, once the EEG is hooked up, then uh, you'll have a answer to your question. If you're in a circumstance where you can't get the EEG, uh, you've loaded with the second line agent and they're not waking up, I really don't think you can manage them without transferring them somewhere to get the EEG done. I don't know of a way to do that. Yeah, and I think that that is a, a problem that a lot of community hospitals face. And I have seen community hospitals try to initiate um, programs of continuous EEG so they don't transfer the patient. But then my question is, who's reading the EEG? Because that seems to be as, as, as difficult as just getting the logistics of the EEG connected. Could you comment in terms of ideally, when would you think they, so the EEG really should be done within the first 12 hours or initiated within the first 12 hours of this whole sequence. Is that correct? Oh, I would want to do it sooner than that. Okay. Um, I'd say the, the future of this field, now there are a couple of devices uh, that are sort of quick connect, limited montage EEGs uh, that I think people should consider if they can't get a standard EEG hooked up 24-7. Uh, uh, we have yet to actually study these devices in status, but uh, there are already some published studies using them in emergency departments and other parts of the hospital uh, to show that they are 
uh, quite efficient at uh, both being attached by non-trained technologists. It can be attached by physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists uh, fairly quickly, and they can also send the EEG data to a central reader over the internet uh, so that if you acquire one of these devices and have the reader available off-site, you could probably manage the patient without the transfer. And these are, um, have, have less, uh, they're, they're rapid uh, sequence terms that they have less number of channels, is that correct? I mean, uh, and they're easier right. to so, place? So one of them, for example, actually two of them have just uh, eight contacts, so you get uh, four channels on each side. And then when people have studied what happens when you reduce the montages, you miss some of the information. But if your question is whether the patient's gone into non-convulsive status, they are, uh, in my mind, quite useful uh, and can at least answer the question in the short term yeah. so that you know whether you need to proceed or not. So it's much more like, uh, I guess, uh, uh, the analogy would be when you're doing a point-of-care ultrasound to answer a specific question, yes or no. Do they have a pericardial effusion, yes or no? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of detail that might not be there, but for a dichotomous question or binary question, it can be very helpful in terms of managing the patient at that point. Exactly. And in, in terms of, uh, a, of of continuous EEG, how long, I, I guess it depends, but what would be the minimum that you would continue this for 48 hours once the, the seizures have stopped? I mean, what, what's the usual recommendation, Tom, these days? Right, so again, the, the data that have been collected aren't specifically for patients who are in status, but if you look at studies of uh, patients in ICUs with various brain injuries, uh, of the ones who will have seizures, you've picked up about 90% of them with 24 hours of monitoring and about 95% with 48 hours. Uh, going from 48 to 72, you only pick up another 3% or so. So you can uh, basically look at the data and decide if you're content with 90 or 95 or 98%. Um, of course, if the patient is improving and you can follow them clinically, then at that point, you can disconnect the EEG. These are for people who remain poorly responsive. So another area that I think uh, creates a lot of uh, confusion uh, amongst uh, intensivists uh, outside of the neuro ICU has to do with um, potential seizures, non-convulsive seizures, and other uh, abnormal waveforms that identify an EEG post-anoxic brain injury after cardiac arrest and after patients have undergone targeted temperature management. So the first question I have for you, Tom, in this area is, should every patient that has targeted temperature management be followed with continuous EEG? So, uh, well, first let me say that I do that. I think that is the best way to manage them, uh, to know if they're having any seizures, even if they're getting neuromuscular junction blockade for shivering. If you are not giving the neuromuscular junction blockade, um, you may miss some non-convulsive seizures as they're warming up uh, if you don't do EEG monitoring. Uh, my own bias is that the patient who has seizures should be treated for them, but that we shouldn't be giving uh, prophylactic anti-seizure drugs in the absence of seizures. Um, there's a very good study uh, from the EEG group at Northwestern that looked at 
the myoclonic activity that is sometimes seen when patients are uh, either being cooled or more likely when they're being rewarmed. And based on the EEG recordings they've done and other people have done, we really don't think that the myoclonic activity in most cases represents seizure activity. It's coming from some lower center. Uh, and the group from Northwestern has also published a, a nice study looking at the phenotype of these uh, myoclonic movements and uh, providing uh, guidance on which movements are likely to portend a poor outcome versus those in which some of the patients have made good recoveries. Uh, so the last author of that is Stefan Schula at Northwestern, and it's worth consulting if you're dealing with a patient who has myoclonus after a cardiac arrest. And I think that's a, that's a very, and we'll put the, the, the reference in the, in the show notes, but I, I was going to actually ask you this specifically because I often see intensivists uh, mention that the presence or when they see myoclonic movement in post-arrest patients, no matter where it is in the time frame, to immediately associate that with a very poor prognosis. And my understanding has always been that what has been shown to really be a, a, a very bad prognosis before the area of hypothermia was myoclonic status epilepticus, which is an EEG diagnosis. And I've never seen that. Could you comment on that? Yeah, so very few post-arrest patients have real status epilepticus. They may have repetitive myoclonus, uh, but it doesn't respond to anti-seizure drugs. It doesn't have the typical evolution of a seizure. Uh, and unfortunately, the American Academy of Neurology's guidelines and uh, practice parameters uh, in the past didn't distinguish these very clearly. I think the ones that are currently under review will do a better job of distinguishing that. If uh, somebody has real seizures uh, based on EEG and by the evolution of their clinical picture, I would certainly treat that. Uh, there are recent publications suggesting that uh, having seizures is bad, but not completely uh, damning in your prognosis. Um, by the way, I would mention that uh, we're really coming around to sort of regardless of any clinical findings, one should wait uh, for about three or more days after rewarming before prognosticating that people who remain unresponsive with poor cranial nerve function uh, have still begun to awaken in seven days and had a good outcome. So I think there's been a lot of premature termination of aggressive treatment for these patients. Uh, David Greer, who's now at Boston University, has done some very good work in this area, and there are more publications coming out every month. Absolutely. I think that with the advent of uh, target temperature management, we've changed the old uh, um natural evolution or course of this disease of anoxic brain injury. And I do believe that today uh, we have to wait more uh, more time. And, and I think a lot of people attribute findings as being prognosticator when they really aren't in that time frame. And that's something that we've talked in a previous uh, podcast episode with, uh, with Fred Rincon, which I think is very important. So Tom, one of the things that, that always I mean, comes to mind when I think of these patients is, uh, are seizures just a byproduct of the, of the damage and they just represent how poorly these patients would do? Or are there something that are treatable, especially when, when these are non-convulsive seizures or when we see pleds or bipleds uh, on the EEG post-anoxic brain damage? 
are these something things that are just represent a poor outcome or should they be treated aggressively well so having either seizures or the repetitive eeg complexes that you've just mentioned uh, carry a worse prognosis than not having them uh, but the thing on the eeg that is most useful in terms of prognostication actually is whether the background activity changes when you give sensory stimulation uh, so that whether it gets uh, desynchronized, meaning it gets faster and lower in amplitude or shows what people have always called paradoxical responses where the sensory stimulation results in big slow waves. Any stimulus given either auditory or somatosensory that causes a change in the EEG means that signal is getting to the cortex and the cortex is making a response. And that looks to be the, the best single predictor of a good outcome uh, in a patient who's been cooled after cardiac arrest. In the, the pre-hypothermia era, the uh, presence or absence of the N20 response to somatosensory evoke potential testing was thought to be the single best predictor, but uh, there have now been numbers of patients who lacked that response early on who went on to make good recoveries. So right now, we would say that EEG reactivity is the single best. Uh, there have been a couple of studies in recent years that look at combinations of variables, uh, the EEG responsiveness, the N20, uh, perhaps adding either neuron-specific enolase or uh, tau measurements in serum uh, to try and improve that. Uh, the tau is still fairly experimental, but the TTM group in Scandinavia had just published a, a large number of such patients. So I think we're gonna be improving our prognostication, um, but right now I'd say EEG reactivity is the single most important thing to look for. Just having periodic complexes or seizures by themselves don't mean you can't recover though. So let me ask you in terms of how you how you utilize um, EEG during your treatment of patients with anoxic brain injury. So I presume from what you told me earlier that as you uh, initiate the, the 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 treatment, while you get them to target temperature and during the time that you are at target temperature and rewarming, you have continuous EEG. Is that correct? Yes. Once they are rewarmed, if the EEG is not showing you any seizure activity. Do you stop the EEG at that point and give them some time to, to see what happens? Yes, I think if there's no seizure activity going on, um, other than looking to see whether there's reactivity, uh, say once they're rewarmed, uh, I don't feel compelled to continue the EEG recording. If they have phenomena that nobody can explain easily, though sometimes seizures are just producing autonomic changes. So I'd say I haven't, done this formally, but probably half of the patients uh, do stay on EEG for one or more days after they're rewarmed just for us to watch what's going on. And, and I think it's a very common practice uh, in many hospitals that as people are trying to prognosticate, like you mentioned earlier, we wait a little bit longer or there's a tendency to wait longer now uh, after hypothermia. But at one point, it almost seems that nobody can be pronounced as a pure, poor outcome without an EEG. And you did mention what are the findings on the EEG that are most useful in that perspective. But uh, at what time would you do an EEG again? Well, 
I would say if I'm getting ready to counsel the family that uh, this seems like it's a, a very poor prognosis, I might look again for reactivity. Uh, other than that, if I'm not suspicious of seizures, I probably wouldn't hook it up again. I think there's a, one useful thing on the horizon, uh, again from David Greer's group, suggesting that uh, a good long-term prognostic study will actually be a uh, quantitative uh, apparent diffusion coefficient measurement on the MRI. And I think uh, he's published one paper looking at this that establishes some thresholds. Uh, other people need to look at it. But if I were looking toward the future, uh, where we're going with this, I'd say that the quantitative ADC of the MR will probably be uh, the best single radiographic parameter as something that you could do once you've rewarmed somebody and now you're in the situation of trying to figure out uh, what should I do. Absolutely. And I think that um, this is obviously an area that uh, has evolved significantly since we started doing hypothermia. And there's a lot still that, that, that we don't know and a lot of, I don't want to say controversy, but maybe vari variability in how people are, are approaching this. But, but it is important to be able to give that information to families. And I do think that uh, a, a point that our audience should take home is the use of EEG and the reactivity in the EEG as being a positive sign a potential cortical function as opposed to what we used to look for before, which were very ominous or negative signs that pretend of a, a no chance of recovery. I agree. So I, I think that this has all been very, very super interesting. I think be very useful for, for our clinicians. We talked a little bit about how to first deal with seizures, what are the first line, second line, and some third line agents. Talked about what status really constitutes and how to deal with it. I think this, this conversation on EEG is a fascinating one, especially outside of the confines of academic centers and neurointensive care units. I think that there's a lot of uh, discussion of whether we should have EEG, who's going to read it. Hopefully, uh, the, the role of telemedicine and, like you said, these new technologies will make it available to more patients sooner. But I do agree, uh, Tom, I think an important point for our, for our clinicians is that if you don't have capacity to do EEG and read them, and you have a patient who you're treating for status, they probably should not stay in that in that hospital. Should go to a place where that can be provided as soon as possible. And I think that's an important point as well. Um, I really want to be respectful of your time. And one of the things that we usually do as we wrap up is we try to ask a couple questions that really explore the, the wisdom and, and other aspects of, of practicing critical care from our guests. Would that be okay? Absolutely. So the first question, Tom, is what book or books have influenced you the most, or what book have you gifted most often to others? Well, clearly the book I have gifted most often is not medical. It's the uh, spy novel, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy by John le Carré. <laughs> which is not only a great mystery read, but has all sorts of insights into human behavior that I think are uh, quite prescient. And uh, I end up quoting much of the time. And I have not read that, but we'll definitely put it in the show notes and I'll put it on my list. And I, and I think that one of the uh, uh, the things that I've learned from, from asking this question, Tom, is that um, a lot of us undervalue the uh, the amount that we can learn of human behavior from fiction. 
And I think it's a wonderful uh, a venue to, like you said, learn about uh, what, what moves people and how people behave. So definitely this is something that we'll want to explore. The second question has to do with, is there anything that you believe to be true that most other people don't believe? Um, well, I've not done a, uh, a formal poll among my friends and colleagues, but um, I'm getting more and more skeptical of the ability of randomized trials to answer questions in the intensive care unit because the control group doesn't just uh, sit there and wait for them to either die or recover. In each case, we're trying to do our best for, for all the other things we do for the patient, even if they're in the, of course, we don't know if they're in the placebo arm, uh, but uh, studies, for example, in subarachnoid hemorrhage, looking at uh, drugs like nicardipine, have come to the conclusion that the drug is not useful. Well, if you look at the quote-unquote control group in uh, the two intravenous nicardipine trials in subarachnoid hemorrhage, those patients got lots more rescue therapy than the ones who got nicardipine. So yes, there was no difference in outcome, but that, that doesn't mean the drug didn't work. And then if you start to look at almost everything else we do, you know, patients in the fluid and catheter treatment trial, for example, well, yeah, there was a difference in their uh, time to wean from the ventilator, but there were still many differences in the way the patients were treated based simply on what did they need at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and plus, I think, uh, go ahead. In that trial, I see in that trial, uh, Mark Mickelson at Penn did a follow-up neuropsychological study showing that the patients in the liberal fluid arm had better neuropsychological function a year later, even though we think that it was good to be in the conservative arm and get off the ventilator faster. So I'm starting to think that we are going to need to have smaller, very focused trials uh, uh, that uh, the populations we're dealing with are really not amenable to large randomized trials. And I think that uh, I, you mentioned this topic and something that I've been thinking about in terms of every year we go to national conferences and either one of two things happens. Either they present negative studies that make you wonder, like you said, or even worse, they present a study that doesn't change anybody's mind because of confirmation bias, right? So people who believe mm -hmm. something works, no matter what you show them, believes it still works. And people who didn't believe in it, no matter what you show them, still don't believe. And I think that uh, not only the scientific um, value in, uh, of really answering questions, but the ability that trials have, the few times they are positive, to change behavior, I think is also very interesting. The final question uh, relates, Tom, to what would you want every intensivist who's listening to this podcast to know? So I've been a uh, full-time neurointensivist since uh, about 1989. And when I look at what we did then compared to now, and not just the survival, but the functional outcome of patients, uh, patients with devastating neurologic injuries of various sorts really do so much better now than they did back in the 1980s that, you know, it's a, a miracle to me to see them. When you're going to work every day, you don't see that incremental change because you know no no day has a breakthrough in it. 
but simply paying better attention to these patients and not assuming that, well, they're devastated, they're going to do poorly, uh, and working hard to try and improve their outcomes is really worthwhile. And I have to say, I've really been proud to see the growth of the field and also the acceptance of neurocritical care principles by intensivists of other fields. We now have uh, very good interactions across the Society of Critical Care Medicine, the American Thoracic Society, Society for Neurosurgical Anesthesia and Critical Care, uh, even the American Academy of Neurologic Surgeons. So uh, some days seem like they're very depressing, but things really are a lot better and they'll continue to get better. And I think that what you mentioned, Tom, which is very, very important, speaks to the fact that we tend to overestimate or what we expect on the short term, but turn to underestimate what can happen over a long period of time. And like you said, I mean, from 1989 to 2018, the advances in how we care for these patients and for the field of neurocritical care are really are really remarkable. And uh, I think that uh, we're gonna learn, um, there's a lot of exciting studies that are ongoing and hopefully we'll continue to, to, to learn how to treat the brain because at the end of the day, it's the only organ that really matters, right? Well, if it doesn't work, the others don't matter at all. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Tom, it was, a, it was a real pleasure talking with you about these topics. I wanted to thank you for sharing your time and your knowledge with us. Hopefully, we'll be able to have you back on the, on the podcast soon. And uh, again, thank you very much for your time. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks again for listening to Critical Matters. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play.